0: Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark and I'm Executive Director of the Center. And this week's podcast is a recording of a panel discussion we had recently on a new report that the Center released. It's on our website at cis.org on the issue of reporting of crimes committed against immigrants, reporting of crimes by immigrants to the police and this, you know, may sound like a kind of arcane issue, but it's actually central to the sanctuary city issue as you'll find out when you listen to it because the whole rationale for jurisdictions, cities and counties and even whole states having these sanctuary rules where they refuse to cooperate with federal immigration authorities, the whole rationale is that if they were to cooperate, immigrants illegal immigrants in particular, would be reluctant to call the police and report crimes because they would fear that they would be turned over to ICE. And there has been a little research on this, but none of it particularly rigorous or meaningful. And so as you'll hear, we did the first analysis of this data set from the National Crime Victimization Survey. And what it shows, just to give you the punchline, is that it does not seem that immigrants are any less likely to report crimes. And with regard to serious crimes, they seem to actually be more likely to report crimes to the police. The whole report is online at cis.org. But if you would like to watch the video as well of the panel discussion, that's there on our website as well. And if you just prefer to read the transcript, that's also there. So the first speaker. On our panel is Jessica Vaughn, who's one of the co-authors of this report, and she's director of policy studies here at CIS. And just so you know, there is one figure, like a bar graph, as part of her presentation, but we're going to have that on the show notes.
1: The topic of immigrant crime reporting comes up frequently in discussion and debate about How local law enforcement agencies should be engaging with ICE and the Border Patrol, and what policies and practices should be adopted. I've seen this discussed starting around about 9/11 or around the time of the creation of ICE, and that's when the realization had really hit among the law enforcement community about the need for cooperation and especially information sharing with immigration enforcement authorities. And then a little bit later after the creation of ICE, when they got the resources to do more enforcement and were able to more strategically put a priority and most of their effort on arresting that small fraction of the immigrants in our country who are actually committing crimes and getting arrested at the local level. And that's about when I remember seeing this raised more and more often as a concern. And especially when a program known as the 287 g program, which allows for local law enforcement agencies to have officers trained and receive delegation of authority to enforce immigration laws. That's when we started to see this argument being put forward as a concern. You began to hear immigrant advocates start to claim that, well, look, immigrants are are naturally more wary of police and therefore won't report crimes because they were afraid of police in their home countries. And and so they argued if, if law enforcement agencies cooperate with ICE and share information, then there's going to be a chilling effect on crime reporting by immigrants. And some would go so far as to say, so, you know, crimes will never be solved against immigrants because they won't be reported. Well, law enforcement agencies were always skeptical. They would say, that's not what we see. We have robust community policing policies and the benefit to public safety of sharing information with ICE outweighs the risk that people won't report crimes, but regardless, This narrative about immigrants not reporting crimes caught on despite skepticism from law enforcement and despite a lack of consensus, even in the academic research about this question. The National Crime Victimization Survey, which is the one that serves as the basis for our new report, before only reported based on ethnicity of those being victimized. But there were some other good studies done, one in Prince William County, Virginia, that looked at this question, but there was not a consensus. And so now, as Mark mentioned, this idea of immigrants not reporting crimes as readily as other people in the community is the number one reason given for having sanctuary policies. And it's a dilemma for law enforcement. They want to encourage immigrants to report crimes, obviously they don't want to stop sharing information with immigration authorities, and they want to refer deportable criminal aliens over to ICE rather than release them back into the community. So most around the country have decided to cooperate routinely and robustly with ICE, sharing information, communicating, and so on. That is the norm for law enforcement agencies around the country. But there are a few big jurisdictions that have sanctuary policies that don't cooperate, prohibit that where, where lawmakers have prohibited local law enforcement agencies from sharing information with ICE. So back to our study, that's why we think that this information is important. The National Crime Victimization Survey is considered to be the most authoritative source of information on victimizations and on crime victims and notably different from some of the academic research that's been done it asks a sample of people first of all were you the victim of a crime if so did you report it and if not why not along with some other information about the crimes and until recently they did not collect information on whether people were foreign born who were answering the survey or whether they were citizens you know until Now until 2017, it wasn't very useful for examining these questions, but since they started asking the respondents if they were immigrants, if they were citizens, in addition to their ethnicity, now all of a sudden we have a great way to examine these theories about immigrant crime reporting. So we obtained three years of responses, 2017 through 2019, And Steve and Karen crunched the numbers, broke down the data in various ways that Steve will tell you about shortly to try to answer two main questions. Are immigrants really less willing to report victimizations? And can we detect a chilling effect based on state and local policies, whether or not they're sanctuaries? Well, if you've read our invitation to this event, you know the answer is no. Immigrants, we've find, according to this data, do not seem to be less willing to report crimes than anyone else. And Brian, if you could show the first slide that we have, this one's not in the report, but this is a representation of the crime reporting rates on all types of crimes. And you see the blue bar, the first one on the left is U.S. born. The green bars are foreign born or immigrants, crime reporting rates. And the yellow bars are the reporting rates of non-citizens, including Hispanic non-citizens, which we think is a good proxy for, that includes illegal aliens. And what you see is that these crime reporting rates for all crimes are pretty much the same. And Steve is gonna talk about the details of these findings, but that's the basic finding. And as for this idea of a chilling effect, the NCVS DOJ database is not great for examining this question, But when you consider that most of the law enforcement agencies around the country are cooperating routinely with immigration authorities, that this finding, this is pretty noteworthy. So when the norm is cooperation and there does not seem to be a suppressed immigrant crime reporting rate. So what do we learn from this? Well, the theory that immigrants in general or even illegal immigrants are especially reluctant to report crime seems not to be true. That's great news, especially for those local law enforcement agencies that have been really paying attention to community policing and encouraging crime reporting from everyone. You know, so that's that's a real good thing to hear and that means that state and local law enforcement agencies should not think that they need to cut off cooperation with immigration authorities, with federal immigration authorities, in order to encourage immigrants to report crime generally. It's still important to emphasize that by longstanding policy as a general rule, victims and witnesses are not targets for immigration enforcement anyway, but it would be helpful, I think, to immigrants to hear from the advocacy groups that this is true, that victims and witnesses are not targets for immigration enforcement generally. And instead of pushing this narrative that state and local law enforcement agencies need to cut off cooperation with ICE. The last time I testified before Congress in person, I sat next to a witness who was representing a group that advocates on behalf of immigrant victims of domestic violence and she said that she advises her clients not to report their victimizations to the police because of the risk that they may be referred for deportation and you know that seems i think to most people obviously a really counterproductive thing to be doing that you know this message that victims and witnesses are not targets is the more important one that benefits immigrants and immigrant communities and law enforcement agencies in going after the offenders. So let's hope that advocacy groups will start talking about that now that we have good, reliable evidence showing that really immigrants do seem to be reporting crimes as much as other groups in our communities.
0: The next speaker is Steven Camerata, the director of research here at the center. And being a number cruncher, Steve actually has three figures in his presentation, which obviously you won't be able to see because this is radio, but on the show notes, they'll all be there. So, And he explains what they are anyway, so you probably can get the gist of it even just listening to the audio.
2: Okay, as Jessica said, we're using the National Crime Victimization Survey, which did not ask whether people are citizens or not and whether they're immigrants until 2017. But now they do. So this is really the first truly representative sample of actual victims. It's not hypothetical. It's not would you report a crime? It asks victims specifically, did you report the crime, what type of crime it was and so forth? And now we can identify the immigrants. It's a panel survey. So they follow people for several years in the same household. It's a survey of people 12 years of age over. The one crime it doesn't include, obviously, because they're focused on victims, is murders. It also really isn't a good measure of crimes against young children. But other than that, the victim survives. It should be a representative sample. And it is basically the gold standard for measuring victimizations. Now, the immigrant sample is not that big. Immigrants are only about 14% of the population. So it's sometimes a challenge to get a representative sample of that. But Because we have three years of data now, 17, 18, and 19, in which immigrants can be identified, we can use a combined sample. When we look at all crimes, the sample is about 2,800 people who are immigrants in the survey. That's all types of immigrants, citizen, non-citizen, and so forth. So when I use the term immigrant here, let me just be clear that I'm talking about what is often referred to by the government as the foreign born. These are all people who are not US citizens at birth. So it would include naturalized citizens, lawful permanent residents, those with a green card. It also include temporary visitors who get picked up in surveys of this kind. And it'll also include illegal immigrants. The survey is actually conducted by the Census Bureau. We know from other Census Bureau surveys that immigrants are captured. In these surveys, including illegal immigrants, are in very significant numbers. We know that immigrants, including illegal immigrants, respond to the decennial census every 10 years. The survey, again, is done by the Census Bureau, but for the Bureau of Justice Statistics, which is part of the Department of Justice. Now, government publications using this data, which come out every year, generally focus on what's called serious crime. Jessica put up a chart of all crime that includes very serious crimes but also crimes that are much less serious. Uh, Small, petty thefts, for example, make up a lot when you put in all crimes. But when we look at serious crimes, which is what most people use this survey to focus on, it includes things like assault, except simple assault, includes completed burglaries, motor vehicle thefts, most sexual crimes. The other thing people look at is serious violent crime, not just serious crime, but serious violent crime. And that again includes rape, sexual assault, robbery, and aggravated assault. So when we're looking at serious crimes and serious violent crimes, that's what we're looking at. Can we put up figure two, please, so we can see this. So on the left part of the table, you see the figure is all serious crime, which is basically all the serious violent crime and all the serious property crime together. And what it shows is that immigrants and non-citizens, including Hispanics who are not citizens of the United States, report those crimes at rates that match, or the little asterisk shows when the difference with the US-born or the native-born are statistically significant. So when we look at all serious crime, we find that in some cases, not only is the percentage higher, but the difference is statistically significant in this survey. So. That would suggest, or that's an indication, that when it comes to serious crime, immigrants are at least as likely, including non-citizen Hispanics, to report serious crime as U.S.-born people. On the other side of the figure is serious violent crime. So this is really the the worst type of crime, the most devastating for individuals and communities, the type of crime that we really want everybody to report. This is not petty stuff. This is the, the worst of the worst. These are all felonies, for example. What we see on when we look at serious violent crime is that in every case, the immigrants, including non-citizen Hispanics, are more likely to report crime than are the U.S.-born, and all the differences at various levels are statistically significant. So we can say from this data that there's just no evidence when it comes to serious and serious violent crime that immigrants are reporting them at lower rates to the police. So all that cooperation that takes place between ICE and local law enforcement has not resulted in immigrants including non-citizens reporting crimes at lower rates. Now, there is a group that's often of special concern. The thought is that within immigrant communities sometimes women especially especially women who are victims of serious especially serious violent crime. Let's put up figure 3. And here again, we're looking at serious Crimes and serious violent crimes against women. The left side of the table is the serious, all serious crimes. So that's serious violent and serious property crime. And then the right side is just serious violent crime, which includes, you know, crimes by domestic partners and all the sexual offenses and assaults, except simple assault, which is usually the least serious. And what we again see is that reporting by immigrant women, including non-citizen Hispanics, tends to exceed reporting by native-born women, those women born in the United States. And I think this is really important. So part of the fear that immigrant women in particular, especially those here illegally or those who are not citizens of the United States and fear deportation, well, they're not coming forward. They're victimized a lot and they don't come forward. The National Crime Victimization Survey, as you can see here, does not support that inclusion at all. They seem to be coming forward more than does the native-born. Now, we'd like all crimes to get reported, so there's always room for improvement. But it it does not appear that they fear the police, that the police are going to do something that they fear, and then they don't go to the police. So I think that population that we think might be especially vulnerable, women, particularly non-citizens, particularly non-citizen Hispanic women, they're going to police at rates that match or exceed the native-born. Now, I could go into a lot more detail about the report. Let me hit on two other topics before I conclude. One of the things we looked at, too, was the survey does ask people who didn't report their crime, why didn't you come forward? Why didn't you go to the police? Now, they have a whole myriad, I believe it's 21 possible answers that they can give to that question, but there are two that may indicate a fear of deportation. One is that the police would cause me trouble, the police would harass me, and another possible answer is. I was advised not to go to the police, like that immigrant advocacy group that Jessica spoke of at the outset. But when we look at the data, less than 1% of all immigrants, including non-citizens, said that if they didn't go to the police, that the reason they didn't is because they feared the authorities. As best we can tell from this data, immigrants not only are at least and often more likely to go to police, especially for the big crimes. But that when they don't, it doesn't appear that they fear the police. The main reason that they gave, it was petty, I recovered the property, or it was small stuff, or the police wouldn't think it was important, and some other reasons like that. But they don't indicate that distrust of the police and that the police are going to cause them trouble or harass them in some way is the reason. Now, they don't ask directly about deportation or fear of immigration authorities, but the answers that seem most likely to reflect that fear... Are seldom given for the subgroup of people who didn't go to the police now, as Jessica suggested, we can't use this survey to look at specific communities. the sample's just not big enough of the immigrants in particular, and of course, the public use data that we use here doesn't break it out by state or locality anyway, but again, the sample wouldn't be big enough. but what we do get, for example, is regions of the country, and this is illustrative of one thing, and that is Regions of the country do differ in the level of cooperation with immigration authorities. With the South being the most cooperative, whether we look at those that have the 287 G program, as you can see from the figure up here, this is the figure that looks by region, and the one side looks at all immigrants and the other side looks at non-citizens. We can't really use this to look deeply at non-citizen Hispanics so much because the sample does get too small, but we can look at all non-citizens. The red bar, I think, is maybe the most interesting. That is the South. That's where communities routinely cooperate the most or go the extra step and have a 287G program. The parts of the country where immigrants cooperate the least tend to be the Northeast and, of course, the West, with states like California being the paradigm example. And yet, when we look at all immigrants, the one statistically significant difference is between the South and the West, with immigrants in the South reporting crimes at 44% versus 36% for immigrants in the West. Now, that's, that's for all crimes. Now, I wouldn't say that that's definitive evidence, but it does suggest, or it's an indication, that cooperation with local immigration authorities, does not result in low crime reporting. We also do some other analysis where we look at community size. Bigger communities are less likely to cooperate. Smaller communities are more likely to cooperate with ICE. And again, we could find no obvious uh, relationship. In fact, in many areas, when you drill down by region or community size, immigrants are actually more likely also to cooperate than are the native-born, which reflects the national pattern. And certainly, we don't see a variation across the region, despite differing levels of cooperation. So I guess the bottom line I would say is that the National Crime Victimization Survey does not show, A, that immigrants are less willing to report crime. If anything, when it comes to serious crime, they're more willing, including non-citizen Hispanics. I only made a point of non-citizen Hispanics because it seems likely, based on analysis of other data that the Census Bureau also collects, that Probably very roughly two thirds of non citizen citizen Hispanics are either in the country illegally in the survey or live with someone in the country illegally. So they should be the most reluctant to come forward. But that's not really what we see in the data, particularly relative to the native board.
0: And the final speaker is Captain Keith Harmon. He's from the Corrections Division of Collier County, Florida's Sheriff's Department and actually deals directly with the issue of immigrant willingness to cooperate with the police to report crimes and what have you. And he had a lot of substantive, I mean, he couldn't talk about individual cases, obviously, but he has a good deal of experience that actually casts some real world light on this issue. And his experience is consistent with the statistical findings of the report that immigrants do not seem at all less likely to report crimes to police, because even if they're illegal aliens, Law enforcement in general always makes clear that people who are victims of crime, nobody's interested in their immigration status because the issue here is public safety. And the issue is when they arrest illegal immigrants who've committed crimes, in other words, they arrest them because they commit crimes, then they find out they're illegal aliens and they want to get those people out of those communities. And that's how you actually contribute to public safety with local and Federal cooperation on immigration.
3: Uh, good morning. First, I just wanted to give a brief introduction to myself and some of my background. I'm the captain of the corrections division for the Target County Sheriff's Office down in Naples, Florida. I hold both uh, corrections and law enforcement certifications, and I'm in my twenty-second year with the Sheriff's Office. My entire career has been in the corrections division. So, in two thousand seven, I had to oversee the implementation of our Jail 287 G program. We were the first. Agency in the state of Florida to sign on to the program. I believe FDLE had signed on previously, but they didn't utilize it. We signed on in 2007, and at that time you could have both a corrections component and a law enforcement component. We had both components, both corrections and law enforcement. I oversaw the corrections side. The law enforcement side was taken away at a later date, but the GEM, what they call it now, the GEM enforcement model, has stayed. So I've overseen this program and dealt with the 287G program since 2007. What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna kind of go over what we do as an agency in reference to the question, are immigrants less willing to report crime? Now, this has been a debate for many years. It was a debate prior to us going into the 287G program. We knew that going in that this was gonna be a question. So we've met with advocate groups, politicians, we've met with consulates and other organizations to discuss our 287G program. We met with them when we were leading up to it, letting them know what we were doing, how we were going to operate. One of the biggest struggles for a 287G program is getting everyone to understand how the program operates, what you can and can't do, and what you're going to do as an agency. So as we met with these groups, you know, consulates, politicians, advocate groups, community organizations, this has been brought up is their chilling effect, as it's called. And we've asked people, provide us evidence that there's a chilling effect, that they're less likely to report crimes if they're here illegally. Today, no one hasn't been able to show any concrete evidence to us of that. So we've continued throughout the years going out and doing different community topics. As part of a 287G agreement, you have to do a steering committee meeting where the sheriff and immigration and customs enforcement do an open forum you're required to post it publicly 30, I believe it's 30 days prior to the steering committee meeting. And people can sign up to speak at the steering committee meetings from the general public, from average groups or wherever. So that's one way we've looked at getting information on, on how we do the program. But for us as an agency, no one, regardless of anything, ethnicity, immigration status, anything, should be afraid to report a crime to law enforcement. When we come into the law enforcement or as a law enforcement agency we're sworn to enforce the laws as they're written. we can't pick and choose what laws to enforce. So for example, they say if you're doing 287G and you're cooperating with immigration, you're going to lose the trust of the community. Well if you don't enforce the laws equally, it's the same thing. You're going to lose the trust of the community if you're not enforcing the laws as they're written. okay And it's the expectation of the community that as a law enforcement agency we take steps to protect them from becoming victims of crimes. We work diligently. We invest significant in outreach, all neighborhoods, of the community to reassure everyone. No one should be afraid to ever report a crime to law enforcement. We've put policies in place where it prohibits members of our agency to inquire about a subject's immigration status during traffic stops or schedule encounters. If somebody is arrested for violating state law, local ordinance, federal law and they're arrested and they're brought to jail. At that time, everybody, regardless of what they look like, every single person that comes into our jail is asked, where were you born? Are you a U.S. citizen? We have the 287G program. If you state you're you're born outside the United States or its provinces, then you're referred to one of our 287G deputies who have attended training and are certified under Section 287G to act as the designated immigration officer. We do a lot of outreach to the community, you know, back school safety celebrations where we hand out backpacks. We work very, very closely with our local women's domestic violence shelter, very closely with them. Our sheriff is actually on their board of directors. They refer people to us to get visas, and we work with them very closely. We do migrant education program outreach. We have a section of our county, which is called Motley, Florida. It is a heavily migrant community. It's a big farming community about 20 miles from our downtown jail we do a lot of outreach out there. That's where advocate groups come from, speaking on behalf of the farmers and stuff like that, because the way Immokalee works is depending on the season and what's being farmed is what their population is like out there. So we do a lot of public outreach out in Immokalee and different areas of the county. We do a lot of food bank safety fairs. We do helmet giveaways and giveaway lights for bicycles. For a lot of people that may be their only transportation, well, under Florida state statute, if you're riding a bicycle after dark, you have to have a light. So we provide lights to them to put on their bikes. So we've done hundreds of community inclusive events from funds, safety-oriented activities for the children, and safety education for seniors and families. Since 2007, we've done over 600 U visas for victims of crimes in our county. That's probably the most in this region of Florida. As to date, this year, we've done 43. We've had one of our victim advocates who work with subjects that she's getting U-Visas for, the victims that she's getting U-Visas for, receive an award in 2014 from Florida Attorney General Pam Bondi for the amount of work she was doing with U-Visas. So our look at it is we don't want you to be afraid to report a crime if you're a victim. If you're a victim, we'll do everything we can do to help you. And that shows the amount of U-Visas we've done. I reviewed the report and was looking at some of the policy recommendations, and I could pretty much check off every single one that we already do. But that stuff we've learned over the years from prior to the implementation of our 287G program to when it was implemented and continuously is your biggest thing you have to do is community outreach. Get out to the community, explain to them what you're doing and how you do it. Some people are. Always going to be against it. Some are going to be for it. Some are going to be in the middle. You're not going to change everyone's mind on what you're doing is right, wrong, and different. But when you explain it, some people realize that you're not just going out into the community and picking up people because you think they're illegal. We don't do that. Our policies prohibit it. No immigration questions are asked by somebody on a traffic stop or consensual encounter. They are asked once you get to the jail after you're placed under arrest for violating law. So I was looking at. Some of this stuff, cultivate a relationship with foreign consuls to enlist their help in explaining our laws and justice system is one of your policy recommendations. We met with consulate groups. We met with a group of about 10 to 12 of them, sat down and had a round table with them, explained how we do our program, how we do our consulate notifications to make sure they're getting notified. We went through that whole process. We have a minority affairs bureau that goes out and does a lot of community outreach and talking to the public, doing presentations. The sheriff goes out and does presentations on the 287g program we've gone out like i talked about monthly they have one church out there that is basically the main church slash food pantry or anything out in monthly we went out there we met with their reverend we met with their delegation and we explained the program some of them once we explained it and they understood it they're like well that's not what we're being told and that's kind of the hurdle you run into when you're running a 287g program one of the hurdles you run into is we get the information out as much as we can we can't go door to door and knock on every door and explain the program to every single person we get it out the best we can we meet with the advocate groups whether you're against it or for it and explain the program to them we ask them explain to your constituents how our program is run we don't want you telling false things on how our program is because all it does is creates more hurdles for us trying to reach out to those members and explain it to them. One of the biggest things with 287G is you're just picking people up that are legal. I can tell you, we don't do that. Even when we had the rural road patrol side of the 287G program, that wasn't done. Anyone that our roadside, when they did it picked up, had to have them approved by ICE. So these were people that we knew that were in the community that had been committing crimes that were determined either not legally here or were legally here, but subject to deportation based on criminal convictions. Before the roadside, when we had it, could go pick them up. They had to present everything to ICE, where ICE would sign off on approving to pick them up. So at no time did our agency ever go out and just arrest people for being here illegally. We've put a process in place. We're probably the longest tenured program in the country right now, because some programs have stepped down. And as of right now, we're probably one of the most productive The priorities change depending on the administration. We started under Bush, went through Obama, went through Trump. Now we're with the Biden administration. Things have changed through each administration. When you have a 287G program, you have to work under a memorandum of agreement per the section of the Immigration and Nationality Act. So we have to function based on what they set the priorities. Sometimes the priorities are not in line with the way the laws are written but we have to abide by the MOA and what the priorities are of the current administration when they're in office.
0: There's a Q&A session also from the panel discussion you just heard that you're going to have to go on our website to listen to because the presentations were long enough for this podcast. I wanted to say a few words on a somewhat different matter. Supposedly this Saturday A new caravan is set to leave southern Mexico. The people involved, Central Americans and Haitians and others, have been bottled up by the Mexican government in southern Mexico. There's a border town on the border with Guatemala called Tapachula, which is the center of a lot of these illegal migrant flows into Mexico from Central America. And there's been a lot of the usual hype about this, but the people leading the caravan have actually made a lot of provocative statements. If the National Guard, meaning the Mexican National Guard, tries to stop us, we're ready for war, this kind of thing. It's kind of over the top. I don't know how many of the actual ordinary illegal aliens in the caravan are like that, but the leadership clearly is very confrontational. And this is just one of a series of problems that Mexico has to deal with because of this flow of people. And not just Mexico, of course, but countries to its south. I mean, these people are all coming through mostly, often the way it works is they start in Ecuador, because Ecuador, they don't have visa requirements for anybody. And then they end up going into Colombia. And then through the Darien Gap, it's called, which is a jungle area that doesn't have any roads or settlements in eastern Panama, serves as kind of the buffer between the north american continent and the south american continent they come through there and they're coming through panama and then costa rica and these are large flows of people that the governments of these countries have real problems to deal with i mean mexico is a big country with some serious state capacity panama and costa rica can't deal with these flows of people they are in fact often just facilitating them in order to get them out of the country they literally will bus them from one end of the country to the other and then hand them off to the next country just to get them out. And we have properly complained about some of these things, whether it's the caravans or just the regular flow of people, and insisted that these countries do a better job of enforcing their own borders and their own immigration laws. But the core problem here is not that Mexico isn't doing a good enough job of stopping caravans or that Panama isn't doing a good enough job of stopping the flow of migrants from outside the region trying to pass through Panama. The problem is the ability of these people to successfully get into the United States. It's kind of like the drug issue where people critical of the war on drugs, the enforcement aspect of it, say, look, if there weren't such demand in the U.S. for these drugs, you wouldn't have these cartels supplying them. And there's something to that. I mean, I don't have the answer to the drug issue, but the fact is that the ability to sell the drugs in the United States is the reason these cartels are smuggling them here. And by the same token, the ability of these illegal immigrants, especially those who bring kids with them, to be released into the United States, which is their whole objective, the ability for them to do that because this administration refuses to enforce immigration laws is what is the impetus for these caravans and for these flows of people through Panama and Costa Rica and Nicaragua and elsewhere. And there's no question that there's a role for cooperation, for our insistence on cooperation from countries to our South in limiting this illegal immigration. We have every right. To ask them to do that. But it's our responsibility, if we make that request, to have a policy that is consistent with what we're asking them to do. In other words, if we're asking Panama to stop the flow of people through Panama, if we're asking Mexico to bottle up caravans like the one that's supposedly going to start on Saturday, it's our responsibility to also have a policy to deter the arrival of people like this rather than reward them. And under the Trump administration, we did play some hardball with Mexico and Central America, but we were not asking them to do anything that was inconsistent with what we were doing. We were all rowing in the same direction as it were. What the Biden administration is doing is saying, in effect, that it is unwilling to enforce US immigration law but it's insisting that Mexico and Central America enforce U.S. immigration law for us, as it were. In other words, you keep these people from getting to the border, but if they get to the border, we're just going to let them all in anyway. That doesn't work. And frankly, it's, I think, morally kind of questionable. These are small countries. I mean, Mexico's a big country, but the rest of them aren't. And we are asking them to undertake difficult policies potentially, while at the same time luring and enticing people to try to get through these countries and get to the U.S. border. We're essentially rowing in opposite directions, to use the metaphor. So only if our policies are consistent and aim at the same objective as the countries to our south, do we really have any right to ask them to help us with immigration enforcement. Right now, I'm not sure that it's morally defensible for us to insist that Panama do a better job at stopping illegal migrant flows when we are rewarding those very flows if they somehow just manage to get through Panama and all the rest and get to the US border. That's all for this week. This is Mark Krikorian, Director of the Center for Immigration Studies, Parsing Immigration Policy. We'll return next week with another interview. Thank you.